Thank you for listening to this production from New Life Presbyterian Church. If you'd like to find out more, visit newlifepca.org. In prayer and informing us about what's going on in the life of our congregation. Always excited to hear about all that the Lord is doing. Parents, you can dismiss your children for Children's Church as the kids are ahead of me and already at the center door. Uh, so... Um, Now is the time to dismiss your children if you would desire to do that. And those staying in the sanctuary can um, turn your attention to the Holy Scriptures. We're going to be picking up in the book of Mark where we left off uh, last time. And so we'll be looking at Mark chapter 15, Mark 15, verses 33 to 47 this morning. And uh, if you don't have a Bible with you, there's a paperback Bible underneath one of the chairs nearby. Passages on page 498. <clears throat> and uh, I, I just want to say that I do think you'll get a lot more out of uh, these sermons if you have a Bible in your lap and open before you, uh, so that you can look at the details of the text as we explore them uh, in our messages here. So Mark 15, verse 33 to 47. I'm going to give a list of names here, and maybe um, you can think about what it is that they all have in common, okay? A list of names. What do they all have in common? Henry Kissinger, Tina Turner, Matthew Perry, Bobby Knight, Jimmy Buffett, Sandra Day O'Connor, Raquel Welch, Jeff Beck. They all passed away in 2023. Just last year, we lost all of these celebrities, well-known people, of course, a lot more than the list that I just listed, but all those people died in 2023. Uh, It's interesting, isn't it, that when we hear about somebody dying, when we get the news about a celebrity or famous person dying, that there's always that kind of initial initial shock, or we're just kind of stunned, uh, as if we thought, these people would live forever. I mean, I don't know how old Henry Kissinger was. I think he was close to 100 years old. Um, it's just by nature, when we hear about people dying, it's just a, a shocking thing. And it's even worse when we hear about loved ones who pass away. Uh, I still remember very vividly when I got the call from my sister about 21 years ago about my father's death. And this was speechless weak in the knees, just felt the blood draining out of my face. I remember just thinking this has to be a joke. There's got to be some other explanation. She must have gotten the information wrong. This can't really be happening. It was uh, <clears throat> an unexpected death. Death is a hard thing. It's always a shock. Even though we all know that we're going to die and we know that those around us are going to die, it, it seems to always be a shock. There's a philosopher I like to quote. His name is Luke Ferry. He teaches at the University of Paris. And he says basically the entire history of philosophy throughout all of history is basically dealing with one question, and that is the fear of death. That's what everybody's thinking about and working through and trying to rationalize and understand. And so uh, Ferry says this in his book. As distinct from animals, a human being is the only creature who is aware of his limits. He knows that he will die and that his near ones, those he loves, will also die. Consequently, he cannot prevent himself from thinking about this state of affairs, which is disturbing and absurd. 
I mean, there are some people who probably think too much about death, are just kind of morbidly fascinated with it. Probably the problem for most of us is that we don't think enough about it because it is the fate that we're all facing one day. What is unique about Jesus Christ is He's not just a, a philosopher who waxes eloquent about death and comes up with a bunch of clever phrases about it or philosophizes about death. What, what Jesus did is He met de- death face to face. He entered into battle with death. He waged war on the powers of death, submitted to the powers of death for a time so that He could empty it of its power. That's what sets Jesus apart from all others who have dealt with death, and that's what we're going to be looking at here today as we pick up where we left off in the book of Mark. If you're able to stand, please do so. You might remember that last week uh, we read about the crucifixion of Jesus. We thought last week about His death. We're thinking more about His death. There's really an extraordinary amount of uh, ink that is spilled in the Gospels about Jesus' death because it's such a significant thing in the Christian faith. Uh, But we are uh, picking up here on verse 33, and so we left off last week with with Jesus on the cross, and uh, that's where we're picking up now. So Mark 15, starting with verse 33, and when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lemma sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, behold, he's calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink, saying, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come and take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly this man was the Son of God. There were also women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James, the younger, and of Joses and Salome. When he was in Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him, and there were also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. And when evening had come, since it was the day of preparation, that is, the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea a respected member of the council who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate was surprised to hear that he should have already died, and summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he was already dead. And when he learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph. And Joseph brought, bought a linen shroud And taking him down, wrapped him in the linen shroud and laid him in a tomb that had been cut out of the rock. And he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of Joseph saw where he was laid. Holy Spirit, we call on you again. Open our eyes, open our hearts to behold wonderful things in your revealed word to us this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You can be seated. 
So we're thinking this morning about Jesus and death. Last week, Jesus and the crucifixion, of course, which led to his death. So today we're thinking more about Jesus' death. And I want to show you three things here from this passage about Jesus' death. First thing is this. Jesus' death was remarkable. I mean, a death unlike any other kind of, of death. And so let me kind of show you how that comes out of the text here. So uh, again, remember last week, we, we we're reading about Jesus being on the cross. We read in verse 25 that Jesus was crucified at the third hour. Third hour would have been 9 a.m. Uh, as we pick up here in verse 33, it says, when the sixth hour had come, so the sixth hour would be about noon, there was darkness over the whole land uh, until the ninth hour, which then would have been about 3 p.m. So between noon and 3 p.m., we've got this very unusual occurrence, this bizarre thing happens. is in the middle of the day when the sun would be the highest and brightest, darkness overcomes the entire land. Um, you might look at this and think, well, this is crazy. This doesn't happen. I've never seen this happen before. Can this happen? Is this even really true to what happened? Notice a couple years ago, actually, it was in May 2020, there was this news report going around about a very similar thing that happened in Beijing, China, actually. At 3.45 p.m., middle of the afternoon, darkness came over the city. And people were commenting that it wasn't just like a darkness from uh, a thunderstorm or a cloudy day, they, they said it got pitch black over the city for this time. Darkness just overcame the city. And so this kind of thing, this kind of thing can happen. Now, they did come up with a perfectly natural explanation. They did actually say it was an unusual storm that came in over Beijing, and it actually cleared up uh, after a time. And so there was a natural explanation for that. But the explanation for what's happening here in Mark 15, I don't think is a natural explanation. There's a supernatural explanation for what's going on here. This is God's judgment on what is happening. Because here you have the Jewish nation and the Romans gathering together to put to death the light of the world. And so in response to that, God says, I'll give you darkness if that's what you want. And so God sends this darkness over the land as judgment on the wickedness and evil that is occurring here as Jesus, the Son of God, the light of the world, is put to death. Very unusual occurrence, very clear what has happened here. Well, it goes on here in verse 34, and we see here that at the ninth hour, Jesus cries out, and he says, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabak." This is actually Aramaic. This would have been the language that Jesus would have talked to his disciples, common language of the day. And so Mark takes this and he translates it for us, puts it in the Greek. What we're reading here, of course, is an English translation of the Greek. But Mark would have translated from Aramaic to the Greek, telling us that what Jesus was saying is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And here's one thing, we're going to talk about more about this a little later in the sermon, but just for right now, what's really, I think, so astonishing about this is, is here you have Jesus. We heard last week about the agony and the pain that he was going through. Here he is about to die. He's in his last hours of life. He's suffering all of this agony and this pain. And what is he thinking about? Scripture. 
scriptures on his mind because this is, uh, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me, is a quote from Psalm 22, verbatim, this psalm of the cross that David uttered, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Friends, this is a, a goal, I think, worth pursuing, that in our last day, we'd be thinking about Scripture. I, I hope that's true of me. But sometimes I wonder, how am I going to die? How am I going to respond to it? Am I going to freak out? Am I going to be overcome with fear? Am I going to lose faith? I hope not. I hope not. I hope what I'm thinking about is Scripture uh, like my Lord and my Savior. So an astonishing, remarkable thing here about Jesus' death, thinking of Scripture as He dies. Well, uh, <clears throat> we have some bystanders here also in verse 35, and they hear Jesus crying out, and they say, well, maybe He's calling Elijah. And so why are they saying that? Why do they think He's calling on Elijah? Some say it could be because uh, when he says Eloi, Eloi in uh, Aramaic, that they might have misheard him. Uh, Eloi, Eloi, kind of close to Elijah. Maybe they thought he said Elijah, but uh, when he said Eloi, Eloi, my God, my God. Uh, <clears throat> it could be also because there was a common Jewish expectation that actually Elijah was coming sometime in the future based on a prediction in Malachi chapter 4. If we look in the New Testament, we see that was actually fulfilled in the coming of John the Baptist. But nonetheless, there were some Jews who were expecting uh, Elijah to come, and so they're thinking, well, maybe that's what's going to happen now, and Elijah is going to come and, and rescue Jesus. Well, that, that doesn't happen. He doesn't get rescued. As we move to verse 37, Elijah doesn't show up. Jesus utters a loud cry and breathed his last. There it is. Jesus died. His human nature, God, we're not saying God died here, but his human nature on the cross passed away, died. What was the cry? Mark <clears throat> doesn't give it, us, give it to us here, but John 19 tells us that what he said in that last moment was, it is finished. That was his cry. That was the last thing he had to say. It, it is finished. That, that his work of redemption, all that the Father had given him to do, was finished, and so he could give up his spirit. Let's be very clear here, friends. This is not Jesus' life being taken from him. This is Jesus giving up his life. In fact, in fact that's what it says in, in John. He, he gave up his spirit. It's not like Jesus succumbing passively to death, overcoming him. This is Jesus actively giving up his life. And so we got one other bystander here to consider, and it's this uh, Roman centurion. And we see him in verse 39, a Roman centurion. And notice here it says that he stood facing him. He's, he's standing directly looking at Jesus as Jesus hangs there on the cross. And it says that when he saw in this way that he breathed his last. In other words, when this centurion saw the way Jesus died, that he exclaimed, truly this man was the Son of God. That this has to be 
the Son of God, based on the way this man saw Jesus die. Now, Mark doesn't tell us the details. What was it exactly that, that he saw that so impressed him, that he found so remarkable about Jesus' death? Mark, Mark doesn't tell us. But we do know some things that were happening uh, on the cross there as Jesus was dying, as we look at some of the, the other Gospels. For instance, we know that as he was hanging there, he turned to the criminal beside him and told him, today you'll be with me in paradise showed grace to a robber, a criminal who deserved to die. We know that while he was hanging there, he looked at his executioners, his arch nemesis enemies, and says, uh, God, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. He shows this incredible mercy to his own executioners while he's hanging on the cross. And even while he's on the cross, he looks down and he sees his mother and he's concerned that his mother be properly taken care of. And so he says to John, take care of my mom. His, his heart is overflowing with love for his mom while he's dying. Grace, mercy, love pouring out of our Savior on the cross. And I think that's what that centurion noticed. I've never seen anybody die like this in my whole life. Remember, a centurion would have been responsible for putting people to death. He's seen lots of people die, but he's never seen a person die like this. And, and he's just convinced this has got to be the Son of God. It's a remarkable confession because Mark 1, verse 1, says this is the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And here we have the very first confession by anybody that Jesus is the Son of God, and it's made not by his disciples, but by a Roman centurion, an enemy of Jesus. It's just remarkable. Sometimes it's the last people you expect who come to bow the knee to Jesus. <laughs> this is the last person we'd expect to become a Christian, the centurion. God saves who he wants, when he wants, and he will surprise you as to who he will save in your own life. But bottom line here, Jesus' death was remarkable. He died well. Jesus died well. And that's a question I think for all us to ask ourselves. Are you ready to, to die well? And I think by fixing our eyes on Jesus, we can have hope that we'll die well. Here's what J.C. Ryle says, <clears throat> the day may come when after a long fight with disease, we shall feel that medicine can do no more and that nothing remains but to die. Friends will be standing by, unable to help us. Eternity with its realities will be looming large before our minds. What shall support us in that trying hour? Nothing, nothing can do it but close communion with Christ. Christ dwelling in our hearts by faith. Christ putting His right arm under our heads. Christ felt to be sitting by our side. Christ can alone give us the complete victory in the last struggle. So if you want to have close communion with Christ on your last day, begin cultivating close communion with Christ right now so that you can be ready and you can die well. Jesus' death was remarkable. But the second thing here that we want to see is that Jesus' death was real. It was real, a, a real death. One of the chief evidences of the resurrection of Jesus is the empty tomb. But of course, what makes the empty tomb so impressive is that there was actually a dead man in there to begin with. Right? I mean, uh, it's not such a big deal to think of a resurrection if we come to learn that the person in the tomb actually just passed out or was uh, in a coma or something. Um, so 
we need to be very clear, and Mark is being very clear and trying to communicate to us that, that Jesus was, was really and truly dead. And so we recite this in the Nicene Creed, right? We're talking about Jesus, who for us and our, for our salvation came down from heaven, was incarnate by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary, was made man, and was crucified also for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried. It's kind of a way of saying he's real, he, he really died. You know, sometimes you hear about near-death experiences, people who, who die, <clears throat> and they seem to go and face God or go to heaven maybe, and they come back or they die on the operating table for a time, and, and, and they're brought back. Differences of opinion about that, near-death experiences. But one thing we know is that there's no near-death experience that lasted so long that they ended up putting the guy in the grave, and then he woke up. I don't think that's ever happened. Because the near-death experience is, is, is quick, and, and he comes back to life in these reports. When you say somebody's buried, in other words, he's, he's got to be really dead, really truly dead in order to be buried. And so that's what Mark is communicating to us here, and he does it by giving to us uh, <clears throat> a couple of eyewitnesses who saw how Jesus died. We saw the centurion here just a moment ago, but there's two other witnesses that I want to show you uh, here, and one is, is the women. <clears throat> there's a group of, of women who are present as Jesus dies, and, and they they see it. What's really interesting is these women show up later at the resurrection also as eyewitnesses. So who are these women? Verses uh, <clears throat> 40 and 41 says there were these women looking on. They, they are at a distance, but, but they're there. And uh, we see there's Mary Magdalene. Uh, this is a woman described in Luke chapter 8 as one who was uh, possessed by demons, Jesus healed her, <clears throat> exercised these demons from her, and so now she is a, a follower of Jesus. Uh, we have uh, another Mary here, Mary the mother of James the younger and of Joseph. Uh, just incidentally, uh, you know, one of the marks of authenticity of the Scriptures is the fact that you have two women here by the same name. I mean, if you're fabricating a story trying to make up a story, you don't come up with two people that have the same name, right? The reason you got two people the same name is because that's what actually happened, and, and Mark is being as historical as he possibly can. So we got another woman here named Mary. Uh, James, uh, excuse me, Mark 6, 3 tells us that Jesus was the brother of James and Joseph, so we think that this Mary is probably Jesus' mother. That's the Mary being referred to here. Uh, we also see uh, Salome mentioned it, uh, in verse 41, as well as many other women, it says. There, there were many women who came up with him to Jerusalem, all sorts of women, large group of women, following Jesus even to the point of his crucifixion. Uh, so one thing I want us to notice is who is not here at the time. I don't see any men. <laughs> Where are the disciples? I don't see them mentioned. I see the women. The women are mentioned. It's not just a couple. There's a group. There's a group of women who are following Jesus to the bitter end, taking that risk, identifying with this Savior, and risking what might come their way. This is a man who's being crucified on the cross. It wasn't an easy thing to identify publicly with Jesus. And here's these women, 
they're there. I mean, we just have to say, you think of women and men, who are, who, who, who's strongest in this case? In this case, it's the women who are stronger than the men. Women are held up here before us as a godly, faithful example. Don't let anybody tell you that the Bible is misogynistic. You'll hear that very frequently. It's not true. The Bible has a very high view of women. It doesn't mean that women are better than men. It doesn't mean that women necessarily should be able to do all the same things as men. It doesn't erase the, the distinction in the roles that men and women serve. But it does confirm, affirm uh, what is a very common experience. It just seems that women tend to be more spiritually interested than men. Generally speaking, I can just tell you, as a pastor who's been here for 19 years, I've seen many more wives here without husbands than I have seen husbands here without wives. And so, true to reality, the Scriptures present to us the faithfulness and godliness of women who were also eyewitnesses. That's the point. They're seeing Jesus' death. And we have another um, eyewitness here, and it's this guy called Joseph of Arimathea. Joseph of Arimathea, verse 42. Evening comes. Uh, this is Friday. So um, evening, uh, it's sundown on Friday. That's when the Sabbath begins for the Jews, because Sabbath is, is Saturday. And uh, if uh, Jesus' body is going to be taken down off the cross, it's got to happen before sundown. And so we have this guy, Joseph of Arimathea, and he decides he is going to take responsibility for that. And what would happen in many cases is that the bodies would just be left to hang there for days, they would, they would decompose, and it would be a, just a disgusting, ghastly sight. And again, it was the Romans' way of communicating to everybody, don't cross us, or this will happen to you. But that didn't happen to Jesus because of this man named Joseph of Arimathea. And isn't it remarkable, when you look at verse 43, you notice that he was a respected member of the council. The council is the Sanhedrin. We've been talking about the Sanhedrin for several weeks. This is the, the, uh, <clears throat> the, the council of religious Jewish authorities who have been harassing Jesus for months and who are responsible for pronouncing a guilty verdict on him that has led to his crucifixion. The council, Sanhedrin, is the arch nemesis, the arch enemy of Jesus. And here is Joseph of Arimathea. He was a member of the Sanhedrin, and somehow he came to believe in Jesus. He got converted. He became a Christian. I don't know, did he leave the Sanhedrin? Was he there on the Sanhedrin when the vote was taken or the verdict pronounced? Uh, we don't know. We don't know. But verse 43 tells us that uh, it took some courage for him. He took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. That took courage. I mean, there was a risk there. I mean, who knows? Pilate might have said, oh, you love that Jesus? How about we crucify you like we just crucified him? And Joseph was willing to take that risk. And he comes and he uh, asks Pilate for the body. And Pilate uh, says in verse 45, uh, it gives him the, the corpse. And so uh, Joseph takes this, this uh, linen shroud, wraps him up, and, and lays him in this tomb and, and so Jesus' body is not decaying. It's not thrown in a trash heap like happened to some other bodies. He, he's given a, an, an honorable and a proper burial. And it's just like God in His providence is just making sure His Son, even though He's died, even though He has died, 
that he's going to be buried well. He's going to be honored well, even in his death. And so one of the things we see here is this is fulfillment of Old Testament Scripture. Uh, here's Psalm 16, Therefore my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure, for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. <clears throat> and on your own time, you can read Acts 2, 25 to 31, when Peter is preaching, he quotes this very psalm and applies it to Jesus. He says it was fulfilled in Jesus. The fact that Joseph took care of his body and made sure it didn't decay is fulfillment of Psalm 16. But notice also uh, that what the centurion here <clears throat> in verse 45 does, he comes back um, in response to Pilate's request, and the centurion says, yes, yes, he's dead. Pilate wanted to make sure that he was really dead. He sent the centurion. Centurion certified that Jesus was, was dead. So Jesus' death was, was real. And I think one comfort that I kind of take from this is I, I think about death is just to think that, that Jesus went ahead of me in, in my death. That You know, it's always a little more comforting when you're going to do something or go somewhere or try something. It's always a little more comforting when you know someone else has done it first. You know, you talk to that person. What was it like for you when, when that happened? When you lived in that city or when you took that job or you tried that thing? And, and Jesus has gone ahead of us in, into the grave. It's like he sanctified the tomb for us. If Jesus has been there, I can go there too. I don't know, just, it just gives me a little more comfort, a little more confidence. Maybe it does for you too. Jesus sanctified the tomb because it wasn't a fake death. He really died. And then the last thing to consider is that Jesus' death was redemptive. Jesus' death was redemptive. A couple very important verses I, I, I passed over. Uh, you might have noticed <clears throat> two, two quick things here. Uh, first of all, the basis of our redemption. If you can go back to verse 34, again, this very, very important verse. Verse 34, where Jesus says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me. Have you ever felt forsaken by God? Have you ever just felt like He was done with you? He would have nothing more to do with you. That, that is a lonely, agonizing, depressing place to be. But for Jesus, it was worse because He didn't just feel like He was forsaken. He actually was. He was forsaken by God. And the reason why is because Every bitter thought, every evil deed, everything vile and wicked was laid upon him when he was hanging on that cross. And the Father, in his holiness and righteousness and purity, had to look away, could not fix his eyes on the evil that was laid on his own son. And not only that, but the wrath and anger against sin, the sins that you and I have committed, was all at that moment being poured out on Jesus the Son as He hung on the cross. And that's why He's saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Interesting, He doesn't say, my Father, my Father. He says, my God, my God. There's a, there's a, there's a disruption here. What Jesus is doing here is He's taking the blame that you and I deserve. He's bearing the wrath that you and I deserve. He is satisfying divine justice. He's being wounded for our transgressions. 
And this is how <laughs> Paul says it in Galatians. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, for it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. That's what's going on. Jesus is being cursed. The covenant curses are coming down upon him. He is experiencing the worst kind of forsakenness and darkness. A guy named David Clarkson says it like this, He was made sin for us as we are made the righteousness of God in him, not for his own guilt, but for ours. Was he punished? As not for our righteousness, but for his are we saved. This, this is the basis of our redemption. This is the foundation, friends. That this forsaking, this verse, it's one of the most extraordinary verses in, in all of the Scriptures. That's one of the most mysterious and profound things that we can imagine. There's no way we can plumb the depths of everything going on here where there is a disruption between the relationship of the Father and the Son, these two persons of the Holy Trinity who have been engaged in loving mutually affectionate relationship for all eternity, and it's broken up. I mean, just imagine somebody loving you faithfully and just perfectly your whole life, somebody devoting himself or herself to you, loving you like you've never been loved before, and then one day that person comes to you and says, I forsake you. What a painful thing that would be. And, and that's what Jesus was experiencing. And the reason that he experienced that, the reason he went through this, is so that you would never hear those words from God the Father. So that the Lord would never say to you, I forsake you. So the Lord would never say, hey, that's one too many sins. That's too wicked for me to deal with. You are now forsaken. Jesus was forsaken, so you never would be. So that you would never be forsaken. That's the basis of our redemption, but we have one other thing, and there's a great benefit of our redemption, and that's in verse 38. Uh, just very briefly, it's mentioned in verse 38 that um, as Jesus breathed his last, as he died, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. What, a, again, an astonishing thing. In, in the temple, there in Jerusalem, there was this huge curtain. It was very thick, and it separated the Holy of Holies from the temple, and it was a symbol of the barrier that existed between humankind and God. It was a symbol of how we cannot on our own reach God. We cannot have access to Him. The only one who could go into that room was a high priest only once a year. Everybody else, stay away. That place is too holy you can't go there. It's not your place. And Jesus dies on the cross, and from top to bottom, that curtain gets split in half, as if to say, now things are different. Access to God is opened wide. Anybody can come. There is no more barrier. Come, have relationship with God. Come and know Him. Come, fellowship with Him. Come, commune with Him. Come and lay down your sins. Come, be loved by Him. Don't let anything hold you back. The curtain's torn. What are you waiting for? There's no more obstacle. Go to Jesus. You remember that commercial, Motel 6, you know? I always leave the light on for you or something like that. It's kind of the way of saying, you're always welcome here. You can find rest here. We're waiting for you. With this curtain being torn, it's like God is saying, you're always welcome in the presence of God. 
you can find rest there if you will go to Him in faith. Well, thankfully, thankfully, the story doesn't end uh, with the death of Jesus, right? We, we have a, a glorious resurrection uh, to talk about, which we will talk about next week. But let me just conclude, friends, by, by just exhorting you. And I know it kind of sounds morbid, you know, to, to be talking about death in this way. But, but again, friends, are you ready to die? That's my question. Are you ready to die? You might say, I'm 18 years old. I'm 25. I'm not going to die anytime soon. You don't know that. You don't know that. There are people in this room that could be dead by the end of the day. It's possible. Are you ready? Let me quote Luke, Luke Ferry. Again, this philosopher who, who says, says this, the Christian response to mortality would seem to be the only version of salvation that en- enables us not only to transcend the fear of death, but also to beat death itself. And, and that's what the gospel offers us. We, we can beat death because we have a Savior who's done it for us. And uh, can't wait for next Sunday because we get to talk more about the resurrection. God, thank you so much for the hope that you give us. Thank you, Lord, that um, in your grace and mercy and love for us, you have endured uh, the hardest and most difficult things, uh, things that we can never entirely understand. But, Lord Jesus, you're, the, the forsakenness that you experienced from your Father for us is just an astounding display of your love and your grace. We're so grateful. Um, Lord, we, we pray for many more years of life. We want to live, and, and we want to serve you on this earth, and we want to give glory to you. So extend our lives, but prepare us to die in your Son well. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.